so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Travis Dickinson to talk about his new book, Logic in the Way of Jesus from B&H Academic. Today, we talk about embracing the life of the mind and the role of logic in the Christian life. Dr. Dickinson is a professor of philosophy at Dallas Baptist University. He's the author of three books, Wandering Toward God, Logic in the Way of Jesus, and Everyday Apologetics, and also serves as the co-author of Stand Firm, Apologetics and the Brilliance of the Gospel. He holds an MA and PhD in philosophy from the University of Iowa, an MA in philosophy of religion and ethics from Talbot School of Theology, as well as an MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Travis, thanks so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square podcast. As we get started, I want to see if you can tell listeners a little bit about your story and your journey into studying philosophy formally. Sure, Jason, thanks so much for for having me on. So uh, for me, it was really pushing in on uh, philosophical questions So, and apologetics. So I, I was in my own life, you know, going through a time uh, where I was asking a lot of questions and, and that kind of thing and had the opportunity to teach apologetics, but I didn't really know apologetics. And so I had to sort of jump into the topic and I just really sort of found my, my own faith growing the more I asked questions, the sort of, and got, you know, got some answers that were sort of like, but what about this and what about that? And so all of that really just pressed me towards philosophy in some ways and just really fell in love and just saw the great value that it has for my own faith and just for living, for flourishing, I think, as a human being and as a Christ follower. Yeah, I think often, especially with my students, when they hear philosophy, it kind of sounds really boring and dry. Um, but one of the things is we walk through a lot of these concepts, it kind of, it almost kind of opens up the world. There's all these type of questions that are really important. And actually, it's incredibly practical. Uh, sometimes it seems very impractical as you're dealing with all these various concepts, um, but it's immensely practical. And one of the things that you do throughout the book is kind of modeling. You say it early on that this book was kind of a product of one of your classes, actually. 
uh, which was Christian thinking and worldview, especially as you kind of teach that in the context of Christian higher education. So I wanted to ask you kind of specifically that question about philosophy. Why is the study of philosophy, more specifically logic, so central to thinking critically about kind of engaging the world around us, including kind of the formation of a Christian worldview? Why is it so key? Yeah, I wish it wasn't in some ways. I wish that theologians and biblical studies folks and scientists and the rest, it really should be the domain of all academic life because it's it's not separate from it. And that's that's one of the really important points. And when it does come to philosophy, though, I mean, we don't have a lab. We don't have, you know, scientific instruments and those sorts of things. And so you kind of just have logic in a way. So you you really are just making arguments when we're really doing the abstract stuff that, you know, goes down deep and uh, gets really dry at times if you don't see the connection to practical life. But um, I, I wish it wasn't, honestly. And, and I, I've said that before that I wish that... Uh, it should be able to be taught by any academic because it should be just the language of thinking people. But unfortunately, this is news to to people. Even though, again, I, I might, and I don't mean for that to sound condescending at all, because I think that all of us who have intellectual pursuits are using logic all the time. So it's it's really just the sort of formalized look at it that I'm doing in the book, and that that other philosophers are looking at when they're doing logic per se, but we're all using it. I mean, for any of your listeners to get to your podcast, to listen to it, they've used logic to get there, right? We use it every day to get out of bed. We use it for all of our uh, career pursuits and so on. The question is just how well do we use it? And have we sort of reflected on the good use of logic and what are some fallacies and what are some mistakes that people commonly make and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think that's a really important point because especially when I'm teaching philosophy, worldview, and even ethics, it's one of those things that we all have a philosophy, we all have a worldview, we all have an ethic, we all have a theology, and it can be more right or wrong, uh, more logical or illogical, or conscious or subconscious, but reality is, is these things are there, we have these ideas, and we're living them out. Um, so I, I like that point is that we're all kind of using logic, even if we don't realize it. And sometimes we just haven't taken the time to sit down and formally study. I told you that uh, not too long ago that we uh, that I never have had a formal logic class. I was never taught that, whether in undergrad or even in graduate school. And so I kind of feel even even approaching a book like this, I was a little kind of I felt a little fear and trepidation of, hey, am I going to really understand all of this and things like that? And you do such a wonderful job kind of introducing kind of not only logic itself, but also kind of the importance of logic as we start to think through this. One of the things that you do in the book that I really like is you open up your book talking about the declining influence of Christianity and society today. And you speak to that decline in terms of kind of an increasing post-Christian culture. So part of that shift is due to an emphasis that you say is an emphasis on emotion over reason. So can you speak to a little bit of that biblical relationship between emotion and reason and how they both fuel the Christian life? And maybe is there one that's more important than the other? Kind of how do we understand that relationship? So I think that I don't ever want to be misunderstood as saying that emotions aren't important because we are emotional beings and we're called to love God with all of our hearts as well as our minds. And that's a really important verse for this book. And so, but I, I do think that when we use emotions to do the job of reason, that's where we make a mistake. 
And so when people, for example, make a decision to come to Christ, is that going to be an emotional thing? Absolutely. I mean, good grief. As we realize all of what we've just done kind of thing, that's going to be extremely emotional, or could be at least. But I don't think that the emotions are the basis upon which we should decide that it's true. And that's where we make a mistake. I think when people start joining a kind of movement because of social pressure, and we're kidding ourselves if there's not social pressure going on in our youth groups and youth retreats, and this is the story of my life in a way, there was all kinds of emotional sort of pressures to come forward and that kind of thing. And I did, and these were meaningful times for me, but emotions are fickle things. They, they come and they go. And I just remember on many of the youth retreats and things that I went on where, you know, 98% of the youth group went forward to commit their lives in some form or fashion. And then, you know, how, how many of us have already violated our commitments, like by the ride home uh, from the retreat, that kind of thing. And so, whereas when we, when we make our decisions about truth on the basis of reason and logic, right? Presumably what we've done is, is indeed found the truth, or at least we have really good reason to believe that it's true. And I think that's partly why we've lost the culture. And I think there's a lot of reasons why we've lost the culture, but I think the more we've backed off from saying, look, Christianity is true and here's why. Christianity informs our disciplines, informs our pursuits, and here's why, right? These are all very difficult and technical and uh, take a lot of uh, time and intellectual, you know, prowess, I think. And so that's where that, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is thinking critically and Christianly. And I really think those two are really tightly connected that we really can't think Christianly about the whole world and, and, and our worlds and, our, and think Christianly even in our worldviews if we're not thinking critically, because we sort of stumble on things, we believe things, I always tell my students, like, use these years here at DBU to really examine your worldview and see how much of this is biblical, <laughs> how much of my worldview is Christian, uh, and how much of this have I just sort of absorbed from the world. It's a w- College should be a wonderful time to really think critically about your worldview so that you think Christianly through your life. Yeah, years ago, we were told that the scandal of the evangelical mind was that there was none. Um, And so one of the things that, and I think we're starting, we've seen a shift in that even in recent years and especially in recent decades um, of kind of a doubling down to say, no, these things matter in terms of philosophy and theology and ethics. And a lot of what we talk about here on the podcast is to think deeply to dwell on these questions, to think uh, wisely and to increase in discernment and kind of intellectual capacity and kind of see the development of a, a Christian intellectual life. And so I wanted to see if you could speak to some of the hallmarks or some of the traits that you see kind of marking the Christian intellectual life. Are there certain habits or traits that you would see, hey, this is somebody that is growing in their faith, it's growing in their intellectual pursuits. Is there any kind of things that we would notice in our own lives and in the lives of others that are growing in their intellectual life. So if they're doing well, yeah, I think that they are. One of the things I really emphasize in the book and and talk about a lot is the what I call the virtue of curiosity. And I think that there's a point at which we can lose our curiosity, and that's a that's not a good thing. Where the world sort of becomes boring to us, or e- even our faith becomes boring, and 
So I, I again, I love this Matthew 22 uh, passage where Jesus, when he boils it all down, you know, he's challenged, what is the greatest commandment? His, his answer is to love, to love God with all of who we are, including our hearts, our souls, and our minds. And that part of loving God with your mind just seems a little odd to us, right? Because we wonder, like the other stuff, okay, yeah, love God with our hearts, that makes sense. Love God with our souls, I guess that's kind of the deepest part of who we are. But what is it to love God with our minds? And I think a curiosity, like, you know, I always give the example of students, a lot of times this happens, I mean, this happens everywhere, honestly, but uh, here at DBU, right, freshman students show up. It's not long before they've sort of paired up into, you know, these these boyfriend, girlfriend kind of disgusting puppy love kind of, uh, you know, new love kind of thing. But my goodness, like if you've never, I think mean, what a great example of intense curiosity, but it's a, it's out of love. It's, it's, it's out of interest that way. And I think that uh, any marriage where there is no curiosity that's a marriage that's in trouble, I think, in some ways. Uh, and I think a faith where there's no curiosity, that's a faith in trouble. So I think that's one big thing. It's just that we're curious. We're asking the deep and difficult questions, not to be skeptics, not to just you know trip God up or something like that, but to push in and really deeply know God, right? I think that's a mark of someone who's loving God with all of their minds. Yeah. I know you spend obviously a good bit of time throughout the book and kind of one of the main purposes of the book is to introduce logic. As I said earlier, I wasn't ever introduced to it early on. Um, it, in some sense, it kind of scares me, especially when it gets into a lot of the the symbols. I start going, okay, what's going on here? And it like takes a little bit extra time. Well, for some on the podcast, they may have never had formal logic training or even been kind of exposed to it at all. So I wanted to see if you could give us just a brief overview. If you're saying, what is logic and what role does it play in the life of the mind? What would you say to that? Yeah, so a lot of it has to do with arguments. So if I were to give kind of a rough and ready definition of logic, it'd be the relationship between statements or claims. And so the fact that we're able to outline a few claims, and then from that say, therefore this, uh, further claim, like that's a really extraordinary thing. And I think that's where logic is sort of best exemplified. And so over the centuries and centuries and centuries, I mean, starting at least with Aristotle and probably before, people have attempted to formalize these things and come up with what are the principles that really govern good arguments, where these premises, these claims that give support to a conclusion are made well. And so the kind of basic distinction are is between the arguments where the conclusion is guaranteed or entailed by the premises. That is to say that if those premises are true, then the conclusion like must be true. But that's a lot of arguments don't sort of achieve that status. A lot of our arguments about the world are going to be uh, what I call non-deductive. Uh, so those are deductive arguments. These are non-deductive. And those are ones in which they just make the conclusion likely or probable. So if the premises are true, then the conclusion is made likely. Uh, and, and you can kind of go from there and make a lot of further distinctions and figure out ways in which what makes for good arguments, uh, especially those non-deductive ones, because those are a little messier than the deductive ones. There's certain principles, again, that we've developed to sort of 
make those better. And then also the, there's many fallacies that um, I spent a whole chapter of the book on fallacies, you know, common fallacies. And that's all a fallacy is for, for our purposes is these sort of common mistakes that people make in their reasoning and they've got a name, all right? <laughs> so if they get a name, then they're, they're probably going to make it into the list of fallacies. And those are typically just mistakes that people often make. And it's really, really helpful to sort of run through those and know what the common mistakes are. So that's kind of, and you, again, now th- this is like just a very light touch of logic, to be honest. I, I've had, I had to have, right, these advanced logic classes in my PhD and that kind of thing. And I mean, my head hurt. Like it was like, you know, just the level of sophistication and technicality is just beyond what humans should be subjected to, it seems to me. But no, I'm kidding. But uh, right. But this is just real sort of the basic. And that's really, again, going back to the earlier question of like, why is this a philosopher's domain? I think this should be taught at our high schools, if not our junior high schools, if not even below. We have mathematics from, you know, element, lower elementary all the way through. And that's super helpful, too, for thinking, well, I think that's one reason why we emphasize math. But how about some logic in there? And, you know, a lot of our Christian schools, classical Christian schools, I should say, are doing this. And it's been really blown me away. But quite a few have adopted the book as their as their textbook, which I've just been so pleased that it's been able to, you know, play that role in a high school student's life so that they're prepared and ready to think well when they get to the university setting. Yeah, I know, especially in my own life, I I think I would benefit from it. So that's one of the reasons I was excited to get your book uh, was to kind of slowly work through some of those things myself. You mentioned um, kind of some of the basic principles, and I know a lot of this is drawn from the works of Aristotle and others, but what are some of these basic principles of logic and how did we come to kind of recognize or kind of formalize them as these rules or principles? So I think that the way, so I'll answer the second one first. I think the way we recognize these is just intuitively. So as we reflect on these things, so it's what I would say is a matter of our intuitions. And what we see when we get a clear view of a logical principle is we see that it can't be false. We see that it governs our thoughts. It governs reasoning itself. Uh, It is a true sort of necessary logical principle. So let me give you one example, it'd be like the principle of non-contradiction. The principle of non-contradiction says that a statement A and its opposite can't both be true, right? So A and not A can't be the case. And it's just simply saying something like, it can't be the case that God exists and he doesn't exist. It can't both be true, right? That doesn't tell you which one is true, but we know this as a matter of logical necessity. Uh, that that would be a contradiction to affirm that they're both true, right? And and as you reflect on that, again, you may not, I can say that about anything. I'm not a huge sports fan, but I'm here in Dallas. So a lot of people like the Cowboys, right? If somebody were to say the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year and they're not going to win the Super Bowl this year. Now they, again, no, no, none of us know which of those is true. I mean, there's some people who have their their hopes and dreams and there's some people who think rationally and it's not gonna happen, but no, but we know this, it can't be both. And so that's a, that's a really fundamental principle of logic. And it's like, try to deny that. Well, you're gonna have to contradict it to deny it. <laughs> so you kind of see and realize, okay, that's necessarily true. And that's true for everybody. And I don't care if you're 
of an Eastern, you know, kind of religion where you're meditating on contradictions and so on, you still are not able to embrace a contradiction. You can't do that when you build a bridge, right? That's going to go very poorly for those people that uh, have to drive over the bridge uh, pretty quickly if you've used contradictory claims to get there. So that would be one example. Yeah. I know one of the things you also, you mentioned it earlier is you talked about the nature of a fallacy. I think uh, there was a book that I had to read in seminary called Exegetical Fallacies that basically scared me to death. Uh, Because as I read the book, it was by, I think it was D.A. Carson wrote it. I realized I never want to preach again. Like I never want to teach because I'm going to, I'm committing all of these fallacies. And it was really convicting. But as you said, kind of studying these fallacies and understanding bad logic at times can be really helpful as we start to think critically and we start to think really carefully. Uh, So I wanted to say, what is a fallacy for those of us who may not be familiar with it? And what are some of the most common? I know you give a, a pretty long list of various fallacies. What do you see as maybe the most common maybe in our society today? Yeah. So fallacy really, I think just the, again, sort of rough and ready way to understand it would just be to say that a fallacy is a mistake in reasoning. But it gets a name and it's committed sort of often and, you know, people sort of point it out. Uh, At some point, it becomes so common that somebody names it and then we put it in our list. Uh, There's lots of ways to make logical mistakes, unfortunately. But yeah, these are like the common ways. So one thing that I think we see a lot, here, here would be an example of a fallacy. We call it the straw man fallacy. And this is where, I, and again, this is like, you just flip on social media and you're going to see straw man fallacies all over the place where someone essentially caricatures somebody else's view, gives a sort of a version of somebody's view that's easily defeated and says, therefore, your view is wrong. Well, the problem is, you know, that's a straw man. That's not actually my view. So I, I've had had atheists along the way as I've engaged in various dialogues say, well, you believe in the bearded guy in the sky, your, your, your invisible friend, and I don't, and that's silly, and so therefore it's false, that kind of thing. And I just want to say, well, good news. I don't believe in that either, right? That's just a straw man of my view because I don't believe in a visible friend in the sky. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't have a beard. So uh, that sort of character. And that's just happening all the time. I mean, it's like you could just ring a bell over and over again in any kind of political discourse. Uh, we're going to have presidential debates here before long, and it just happens over and over and over again. So that, that'd be a pretty good example of a very common uh, fallacy. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned social media because, honestly, as I was reading through some of the fallacies that you listed, I was like, oh, this describes Twitter. Like, or this is Twitter, or this is common all the time. Like, it's, and I think that's one of the things is we see kind of the, our public discourse kind of disintegrate in some sense, the inability to actually communicate and critically engage one another. A lot of that, again, is logic. It's not something that's just in the philosopher's domain that we spoke about earlier, but it's actually something that drives so much of our life. I know as part of my work uh, in research and especially in teaching, as I routinely come across non-Christians, as you kind of mentioned, some atheist uh, friends that you have who argue that Christianity is inherently illogical. 
Um, I know that's one of the things that we address in our class or what are some, and it helps us to kind of address what are, what do other people think about our faith and what do they think this illogical or circular reasoning or something like that. I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack that a little bit, maybe some aspects of the Christian faith that seem illogical, but maybe not actually illogical and kind of help us to think through some of that as we think about how we engage other people, especially in the public square today. Yeah, so part of the problem, too, is people use this word illogical to mean a lot of different things. And so sometimes that just means you don't have any good evidence for this, but that that wouldn't be a careful use of the word illogical. Illogical, I think, in its strictest sense would be something like, you know, it's not logically coherent or it runs foul of some of these principles that we've talked about a little bit. It's contradiction, for example. So that would be a that would be a true blue illogical thing if it's a contradiction. And I, I think, of course, the classic example would be the doctrine of the Trinity. Someone would say, I've had uh, Mormon missionaries tell me that, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity is contradictory. Now, they didn't know I was a philosophy slash logic professor. So that was, you know, sorry for them. But uh, so I, my response is to say, well, it's not a contradiction because the way in which God is three is not the same way in which he's one, right? He's one in being, uh, he's one in essence, uh, but he's in three persons. And so you don't get a contradiction there because you're not saying A and not A, you're saying A and B, really. Um, You're describing God. Now, is it difficult? Yes. Is the doctrine of the Trinity difficult to get our heads around? Absolutely right? It's something that the, you know, exercise the the brightest minds that have ever lived. And I think they would also say, this is really difficult, but it's not a contradiction. It's not illogical, strictly speaking. And then all the, all the rest, the claims like, well, it's illogical to believe that a man rose from the dead. And I want to just say, no, it's not. I mean, unexpected, yes. Un, un, uh, you know, something that's not going to happen very often, yes. Uh, is it supernatural? Yes. Is it miraculous? Yes. But even that, like a, mirac- a miracle is not, strictly speaking, illogical, so long as one believes that God exists and God has the power to raise a dead man to life. What's the contradiction? Like, what's illogical about that? Now, again, you might not even believe in God, and you might say that there's, uh, okay, so another one might be that the existence of evil makes belief in God illogical. That would be another sort of go-to. But I don't know a philosopher that really thinks that today. That That's kind of an interesting thing that used to be the, the so-called logical problem of evil uh, in the 50s and 60s used to be kind of the knockdown, drag-out, argument against God, belief in God, against theism. But today it's actually well regarded as solved, that it's clearly possible that there is the evil, that there is evil in the world and an all good, all powerful God. And so again, I I think there are good answers to that, though it might appear to someone to be intention. And I think that's the really important thing, going back even to the curiosity bit. Like I, I really want my kids, I want my students, I want people that, I, that I'm t- engaging with to be curious about these things. Like, yeah, see those tensions, right? And wonder about that. Like, how do you have, you know, evil in the world and pain and suffering in the world and an all good God? How how do we, like, be curious. That's kind of the point that, that I was, this is a good illustration of the point that I was saying earlier, is that 
that should create in us a kind of curiosity, again, not as skeptics, but as lovers, that we would want to love God with our mind and press into that and say, let's ask some deep and difficult questions here. And my experience, again, you know, and I, I would suggest to many others who have looked at these matters is that there's some really powerful answers to these things. Now, we're not going to get it all figured out, that's for sure. But uh, But I think that I have found Christianity to answer in at least a satisfying way all of those deep and difficult questions and doubts that I've had along the way. So, yeah. Yeah, I like that you kind of bring it back to that that virtue and some sense of curiosity and some of those traits, uh, because that's one of the questions I was going to ask you, but I'll kind of expand on that. We can kind of end here. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed, too, and you do a really good job of this, is just being humble. Um, just being, I always talk to my students about being epistemically humble, uh, meaning not only in the limits of what we do know, but also what we don't know. Um, and just being humble about those things and kind of laying those things, especially at the feet of Jesus and seeking these answers to be kind of insatiably curious to kind of dig into these things, because that's one of the things that um, at times the sometimes the our faith as Christians is caricatured as whether it's illogical or just, just flat out false um, at times, or it's just kind of a, a, a feel-good story or something like that. But when you press into a lot of those really hard questions, you see the beauty of the gospel. You see the beauty of this biblical story, about biblical revelation of who God is, how he made us in his image, and how he calls us to live in this world. And that's one of those beautiful things about the Christianity is that it's not just kind of a, a plateau that you reach, but it's actually kind of a journey that you continue on through the rest of your life. Well, obviously, we want to highly recommend this book, Logic in the Way of Jesus, Thinking Critically and Christianly. Uh, but I wanted to ask you and kind of pick your brain about some further resources. Are there other books, not just specifically on logic, but maybe even critical thinking uh, that you think would be very helpful for folks if they want to dig a little bit deeper into some of these subjects? Yeah. So th there are a lot of books out there on critical thinking. There was none from a sort of Christian perspective that really was accessible. There's a few that are a little more uh, challenging, but that's one reason why I wrote the book is even though that's not my primary area of scholarship, but I wanted to write a book that was really accessible. But I, I would say when it comes to some of the other concepts of how to approach our Christian faith from a more sort of intellectual pursuit, I would definitely highly recommend J.P. Moreland's book, Love God With All Your Mind. Uh, that book changed my life. And really, I see this as a, and JP was kind enough to endorse my book. I see this as kind of the next step to get into the nuts and bolts. So that's, he lays out, he does far more with the history of how we lost this intellectual tradition that used to be so at home in uh, the Christian life. And then he talks, he does a, a lot of apologetics in there and just really sets the stage. And so then my book is in a way kind of getting into some of the nuts and bolts of logic and critical thinking. So um, I would highly recommend JP's book for sure. Yeah, we'll make sure a link to JP's book as well as, I'm, I'm glad you brought up earlier, kind of the Doctrine of the Trinity. So we've had past guests like Matthew Barrett from Midwestern Seminary talking about his book, Simply Trinity, as well as Adonis Vadu from Gordon Conwell talking about some inseparable operations and how we think through the nature of the Trinity. As you said, um, it's not illogical. It's difficult. It's confusing at times, um, but it is something that there is not only good evidence, but there's also a lot of scholarship to help us think through some of these things. So we'll make sure to link to those uh, episodes as well in the show notes. But Travis, I really appreciate your work. I appreciate this book specifically, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. 
Absolutely, Jason. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Dickinson and learn more about his new book, Logic in the Way of Jesus, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.